0: Well, last week I began a series entitled A Consideration of Church Membership, the Ordinances, and Children. Uh, I could reverse the order of the words to emphasize what the focus of this series will be. I could call it A Consideration of Children, Church Membership, and the Ordinances. And as I said last week, while there are some foundational principles that will be laid, they must be laid, regarding church membership and the ordinances, the goal is not to address those subjects by themselves. Instead, I will be speaking about church membership and the ordinances primarily and to the degree that it lays a foundation for or aids an understanding of how these things apply or do not apply to children. So last week was an introduction to the subject. It was a kind of prolegomena. You know what prolegomena is? I know our seminary students know what prolegomena is. If you've read uh, systematic theologies through the years, you've come across prolegomena. Um, That means just first words. Pro, before, legomena comes from logos, words. It just means an introduction, first words uh, pertaining to the subject at hand. And so last week was somewhat of first words, a prolegomena, uh, some introductory remarks, and I, I wanted to state some of the goals of your pastors. And I said that first, the goal of your pastors was to be thoroughly biblical, thoroughly biblical. We don't want to be careless with the Word of God. We want to be thoroughly biblical. Uh, we don't want to be superficial, uh, but again, thoroughly biblical, and we want to call us all to do the same. Secondly, I said the goal of your pastors is to be faithful, faithful as those who will give an account to God. This weighs heavily upon us. We want to be faithful because we will give an account to God for these matters regarding church membership, the ordinances, the functioning of the church. That is our role. That is what God has called us to do. We want to be faithful in that regard and we want to be faithful in regard to ministry to our children. So thirdly, I said the goal of your pastors is to be careful as shepherds of souls and protectors of the sheep in the church. So again, careful as shepherds of souls. Carelessness in this regard regarding membership, the ordinances, and as that pertains to children has very serious consequences. And it serves to protect the church if we are careful the church, and the souls that are given to our care. And then I ask you to do four things. Be kind, be patient, be humble, and be attentive. Now, I won't go over all those again, but if you were not here last week, I would strongly encourage you, in fact, I would plead with you to listen to the recording of these things last week. They're available on our sermon audio webpage. I sent out an email Uh, in our email distribution yesterday with a link to last week's lesson. Uh, And in fact, even if you were here and you're wrestling with these things, or even if you're not, I would encourage you to listen to it again prayerfully and carefully, because last week's introduction was very important. Now, I ended our time last week with a kind of informal survey. I asked questions like these how many of you have been baptized how many of you have been baptized at least two times how many of you were baptized a second time or more because you came to the conclusion that when you were baptized previously you were not a believer i ask how many of you were baptized as children and then were baptized again later so there's seems to be a little fewer people here today but let me, let me do that again. Let me just ask two questions. How many of you have been baptized? Raise your hand high if you've been baptized. Okay, how many of you have been baptized now at least two times? Okay, now that's a, a large number of people. And as I mentioned last week, probably 50% last week, at least if not more, said they've been baptized multiple times. And in most cases... That's because they were baptized as children, but yet were not believers as children, and then became convinced at a later date that they were not, didn't understand the gospel even in many cases when they were baptized as children, and therefore were baptized again as a believer. In my more than 27 years of being a pastor, And in my personal knowledge of the sheep here, I've found that most conclude that when they were baptized as children, especially when they were baptized as young or younger children, that they didn't even have a sufficient grasp of the biblical gospel in order to believe and rest on Christ for salvation. And I just want to emphasize again that this is a serious problem in churches, and it has been for a very long time. Many people have been and still are being baptized before they're actually believers. And much of the church today is receiving people as believers when they are not. And the reason is often due to the carelessness and lack of thorough consideration of a person's profession of faith to see if it's credible. What do they really believe about the gospel itself? Do they understand The content of the gospel. That's the starting point. For we cannot believe in Christ if we don't even understand the content of who he is and what he did to save sinners. Do they understand before they're baptized and received as church members? The the nature of saving faith. What is saving faith? What does it mean to believe? It's such a, a nebulous word. It's used so carelessly today. That people don't even understand biblically what saving faith is and what the nature of saving faith is. And do people even understand what the Bible teaches about the one they claim to be the object of their faith? Again, who is Jesus? What has he done to save sinners? And often the carelessness is in relationship to children and the common practice of baptizing children and affirming them to be believers before they are at an appropriate age of maturity and before the credibility of their profession can be wisely and accurately discerned. This is harmful and detrimental to local churches, and it's harmful and detrimental to the individuals who have been affirmed as believers through baptism, church membership, and admission to the table of the Lord. An unregenerate church membership is harmful to the church. It's harmful to the ability of that church to function biblically. It's harmful to the church's witness to the world and the church's ability to glorify God. And so this is an extremely important subject. And therefore, it might be good to emphasize the title or emphasize this by tweaking the title in this way. A call for a careful consideration of children, church membership, and the ordinances. For sadly, often there is no careful consideration of these things. And our desire as pastors is to call us to carefully consider these things. Now, there are many subjects. And many scriptures to consider in this careful consideration of the subject at hand. And so last week I said be patient for it will take time to cover everything. And it's going to be piece by piece and little by little. But I think a good place to begin is with the book of Acts. The book of Acts. So take your Bibles and just have them ready for in a moment we're going to be looking at some passages In the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really important because we need to make sure that we are applying proper hermeneutics as we read and study the book of Acts. And this is important for a number of reasons because many go astray in a number of areas of doctrine and practice, not just the particular subject at hand. But in a lot of areas of doctrine and practice because of a lack of proper and sound hermeneutics as applied to the book of Acts and because of a lack of understanding of the purpose and nature of the book as intended by Luke, the one who wrote it as he was born along by the Holy Spirit to pen sacred scripture. And so today we will move forward, so to speak, in our study and understanding of this subject by considering the book of Acts and how we're to approach it hermeneutically. So today is largely a hermeneutical lesson as applied to the book of Acts because for many who would argue for an immediate Uh, baptism upon one's profession of faith, meaning sometimes rather immediate. Some even argue today that it's rather spontaneous on the particular Lord's Day, that it's a call for people to be baptized, and upon their verbal profession of faith, they're literally baptized that day. Some, it's that immediate. And they argue from the book of Acts for that. Or a rather immediate, at least very close from a profession verbally of faith, to the waters of baptism, the next Lord's Day, or very soon after, as soon as can be. That argument is typically from the book of Acts. And then there are those who would say, and that should be applied to children. And so we need to have a careful look at the book of Acts and make sure that we're approaching it correctly from a hermeneutical standpoint. So let me allow you to give you a word first about hermeneutics. I assume that word is familiar to you. If you've been here for any period of time, you've heard it in various settings. But the word hermeneutics comes from the Greek word hermeneua, and it means to interpret. So hermeneutics is the interpretation of Scripture. It's the study and application of principles and guidelines for the correct interpretation of the author's intended meaning biblical hermeneutics includes principles of interpretation related to things like this understanding the historical setting of a passage or a book of the bible or the cultural setting of that particular passage or book of the bible it includes understanding the context of a passage that passage in and its context of that book as a whole, or the immediate context, what comes before it and what comes after it. So context is important. Hermeneutics also includes doing word studies, understanding the very words that are used, for every word is inspired of God, and understanding the nuances of that word, the particular meaning of that word in its context. Hermeneutics includes analyzing grammar and thought structure understanding figures of speech comparing scripture with scripture what we call the analogy of scripture hermeneutics includes understanding the literary genre is it a didactic passage is it a parable how does that factor into how we interpret that portion is it old testament wisdom literature if it's that genre, there are particular rules of hermeneutics that apply. Is it prophetic or apocalyptic literature? Or is it historical narrative? The literary genre affects how we interpret that book or that particular passage. So all of these things are part of hermeneutics and they're vitally important. Now, as it pertains to the book of Acts we must consider the genre, the literary genre. The the book of Acts is historical narrative. And this plays a role in how we interpret it and apply it. Now, that's not to say there's nothing didactic in the book of Acts. But the literary genre is itself historical narrative. And it's important to understand that. Now, in his book... Knowing Scripture by the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, he gave some foundational hermeneutical principles. And one of those principles is this. Interpret historical narratives by the didactic. Interpret historical narratives by the didactic, meaning when there's historical narrative in Scripture, Make sure you interpret what's taking place there by the didactic portions of Scripture. Now, Dr. Sproul writes this. Listen carefully. It's an extended quotation, but it's important to understand. He writes this. The term didactic comes from the Greek word that means to teach or to instruct. Didactic literature teaches or explains. Much of Paul's writing is didactic in character. The relationship between the gospels and the epistles often has been defined in the simple terms of saying that the gospels record what Jesus did and the epistles interpret the significance of what he did. Such a description is an oversimplification in that the gospels often teach and interpret as they are giving their narration and the epistles are rooted in the narrative of Paul's life and mission, but it is true that the emphasis in the Gospels is found in the record of events, while epistles are more concerned with interpreting the significance of those events in terms of doctrine, exhortation, and application. He goes on to write, One of the chief reasons why this rule is important, and what is the rule, by the way, that you, in, you interpret the historical narratives by the didactic?" He says, why this is so important is to warn us against drawing too many inferences from records of what people do. For example, can we really construct a manual required for Christian behavior purely on the basis of an analysis of what Jesus did? So often when a Christian is faced with a problematic situation, he is told to ask himself, what would Jesus do in this situation? This, of course, was popularized by the wristbands and t-shirts that many Christian youth wore sporting What Would Jesus Do or WWJD. And then he says, that is not always a wise question to ask. A better question would be, what would Jesus have me do in this situation? Now he says, why is this dangerous to just look at the narrative and say, here's what Jesus did, therefore I draw a conclusion about how I'm to live and what I'm to do from the narrative of what Jesus himself did. He says, if we try to model our lives precisely according to Jesus' example, we may get into trouble on several counts. First, our task as obedient children to God are not exactly the same as Jesus' mission. I was not sent into the world to save humans from their sins. I cannot go into a church with a whip and drive out corrupt pastors. I am not the Lord of the church. Second, and perhaps not so obviously, Jesus lived under a different period of redemptive history than I do. He was required to fulfill all the laws of the Old Covenant, including dietary and ceremonial laws. Jesus was being perfectly obedient to the Father when he was circumcised as a religious rite. If I become circumcised, not for reasons of health or hygiene, but as a formal religious right, I am by that right repudiating the finished work of Christ and bringing myself back under the curse of the Old Testament law. In other words, we could be guilty of serious sin if we tried to imitate Jesus exactly. Here's where the epistles are so very important. They call us to imitate Christ at many points but they help us delineate what those points are and are not. Now, he goes on to say a third problem, if you're just looking at historical narrative and he's giving the Gospels, here as an example. and saying this is how I'm to live the Christian life. He says a third problem with emulating the life of Jesus is in making the subtle move from what is permissible to what is obligatory. For example... I know those who argue that it is the Christian's duty to make visitations of mercy on the Sabbath day. The argument is that Jesus did it on the Sabbath day and therefore we should. He writes, now the subtlety is here. That Jesus did such things on the Sabbath reveals that such activities do not violate the Sabbath and are good. But Jesus nowhere commands us to do these works of mercy on the Sabbath. His example shows us that we may, that they may be done, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily that they must be done. He does command us to visit the sick, but nowhere stipulates when that visitation must take place. That Jesus remained unmarried, he gives another example, shows that celibacy is good. But his celibacy does not demand that marriage be repudiated, as the epistles make clear. So you can see again how important it is to nuance these things. To to be very careful not just to say, here's narrative and here's what Jesus did. Or here's what uh, the early church did. Or here's this. And say, therefore, that's what we must do. So, he goes on to say, apart from extrapolating points of character and ethics from the narratives, there's also the problem of extracting doctrine. For example, in the narrative of Abraham's offering Isaac on the altar at Mount Moriah, he's stopped at the last second by an angel from God who says, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And so he writes, note the words, now I know. Didn't God know in advance what Abraham was going to do? Did he sit in heaven in a state of divine anxiety awaiting the outcome of Abraham's trial? Did he pace up and down the celestial quarters asking for bulletins from the angels on the progress of that drama? Of course not. So you see, here, is a a narrative passage that we must be careful not to extrapolate certain doctrine about that narrative. So he writes this, very important. The didactic portions of Scripture preclude such inferences that God learns things, although that's the language in the narrative. Yet if we establish our doctrine of God purely from narratives such as this one, we would have to conclude that our God is an ever learning and never coming is ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And so, Doctor Sproul wrote this: building doctrine from narratives alone is dangerous business. I am sad to say that there appears to be a strong tendency for this in the popular evangelical theology of our day. We all must be careful to resist this tendency. The book of Acts is historical narrative. That's the literary genre. Therefore, we must interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. So do you see the need to be very careful in our interpretation of historical narrative and the application of those things that we find there to the church or to the believer, to the practice of the church or to the lives of believers? Now, this is very important, and again, we're trying to be thoroughly biblical, we're trying to be rather meticulous in these things, because the typical argument that sometimes I believe is rather superficial is, well, here's what you see in the book of Acts regarding a number of subjects, but in particular as it pertains to baptism, let's say, or to the immediacy often that you find of baptism, and let me show you why that's not a proper perspective and you just can't superficially just say that settles it you're in the book of acts look at chapter 1 and in chapter 1 verses 12 to 26 we see the replacement of Judas Iscariot the betrayer with Matthias so that's acts 1 verses 12 to 26 they're replacing Judas Iscariot but notice verse 23 it says, so they put forward two men. There are two men that were put forward to replace Judas Iscariot. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So you have two men, Joseph and Matthias. Now, how did they choose between them? Verse 26, and they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, let me just ask the question, is that how we are to choose church leaders today? Should we extrapolate from that that this is the method by which we are to choose church leaders? And that may sound absurd because, frankly, that would be a rather careless handling of the text. We, yes, they drew lots to choose one over the other to replace Judas, but... But then most people would say that's not how we're to to practice. We don't take that historical narrative as, uh, as command and even as an example to follow. And so is this meant for us as a prescription for how to determine who our leaders are in the church? Now, this passage is instructive when you read it about who was qualified to replace Judas as an apostle. But the method by which they determined which man would replace him is descriptive of what really happened, not prescriptive, not command. And is certainly not to be applied to our practice today. I don't even know how to draw lots. I'm not sure I even know the particulars or as people look at what that was. Most don't even know for sure exactly what that looked like. But if we were to read historical narrative and take that which is descriptive of what happened and make it prescriptive for the church, then that's how we would choose church leaders, potentially. Look in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47, after Peter preaches, after Uh, There's a a miraculous event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, and those who believe and speaking in tongues. It speaks of those who were now in the church as having all things in common and selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all. So Acts 2.44 says this, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, let me ask you, is this prescriptive for us today? Is this what we are to do today? Is this how we are to fund the benevolence fund by selling our possessions and selling and giving our our proceeds to the Benevolence Fund. When we go to the New Testament letters, to the epistles, we do not find this as a common practice, that, that we just sell our property and have all things in common. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you find a record of giving to the poor in various churches, in the church in Jerusalem. There's no mention of selling one's possessions and having all things in common. And when you go to Ephesians 4, verse 28, it says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with those who have need. And so we work and we labor and and we apportion part of that as God provides an abundance to share with those who have need. And then you read in First Timothy chapter 5 of providing for widows, those who have need. A husband has died and they have need. And it says this in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the didactic portion of Scripture would say, well, those in one's own household, uh, uh, children to, to aging parents or a, a widow or Even vice versa or whatever the situations you you provide for your own in the church, but especially in your own household. And then there's teaching, didactic teaching on supporting in the church those who are called widows indeed, who meet certain qualifications. So my point is this. We don't read the book of Acts and determine this is what we're to do. We all need to sell our possessions and have all things in common. That would be poor hermeneutics. That's descriptive of what happened, but it is not prescriptive for the church. We find in the epistles that which is prescriptive and didactic. And also consider Acts 2 verses 46 to 47. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were were being saved. Now are we to extrapolate from this how often we're to meet? It says they met day by day. How about us meeting day by day? And where did they meet? Well, it says they met in the temple, but also house to house. Are we to extrapolate from this where the church is to meet? Is this a prescription for where the church meets? Is it a prescription for meeting in a central location, but also having small groups in homes? That's extrapolating too much. (laughs) That's trying to extrapolate some practice and doctrine that's simply not meant to be there. And it says that we're breaking bread from house to house. Is breaking bread the Lord's Supper? And if so, is this a prescription for partaking in the Lord's Supper in homes? Do you see what I'm getting at? We can do this throughout the book of Acts. And verse 48 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Is that to be expected now? Some might suggest our philosophy of ministry is wrong. Our methods are wrong. And we need to be doing exactly what it says here. And if we did, then we would be seeing people added to our numbers day by day. Look in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. The beginning of Acts 6 records a a controversy in the early church in which certain widows were being neglected. Certain Hellenistic widows, Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected in the daily serving of food. And there was a priority given to uh, the native Hebrews. And so the, the apostles say at the end of verse two it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of god in order to serve tables therefore brethren select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word so the statement found approval with the whole congregation they chose stephen and he goes on to tell all the men there um, and They brought them to the apostles after praying. They laid hands on them, and the word of God kept spreading, verse 7. And so the the problem was resolved. Now, we need to ask the question, is this the precursor to the office of deacon? How How do we determine that? There's actually some word studies you would do. That's another area of hermeneutics. Some would argue there's no... Mention of the office of deacon, and I would agree in a formal sense, but there are words, verb forms used for the diaconate there and serving, and serving tables. But see, this is you have to look at hermeneutics. And what does the rest of Scripture say? Does it come to bear upon this passage? So you'd go to the rest of Scripture, the, the epistles. And here they selected seven men for this task. Must we select seven men for this purpose in our church? If this is the forerunner to the office of deacon, is this a prescription to have seven men serve as deacons? And what about the qualifications? It simply says, men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now that's not specific, but if we go to the epistles, we find more specificity in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, about the qualifications of a deacon, if indeed this is a precursor to the office of deacon. So you can see how we must go to the didactic passages of scripture that speak specifically to these matters and then I could just say what about speaking in tongues and the miraculous gifts found throughout the book of acts in the book of acts there were occasions where those who believed spoke in tongues is speaking in tongues normative for the church today Or was there a particular purpose for God working in that way in the early church? Are we to take these events, the miraculous and the speaking in tongues, as prescriptive? That's what we must do? When I became a Christian at age 17, there were those who instructed me that I I should speak in tongues. And they instructed me how to do so. Their primary argument was from the book of Acts. But were these things taking place for a particular reason in the formative days of the early church? Again, are tongues and miracles normative for today? See, these are important things to consider. And that's just a sampling when we interpret the book of Acts, which falls into the category of historical narrative. The hermeneutical principle is this. Interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. And if we do not take this hermeneutical principle to heart and practice it, if we're not careful, but instead simply take all historical narrative as prescriptive, as if it were didacted and commanded, then we'll end up in a plethora of errors regarding doctrine and practice. Now, let me pause here and define some words. I've been using some words and I want to emphasize them and define them. I've been using words like descriptive and prescriptive, formative and normative. And I I can add two other words, extraordinary and ordinary. Now let me explain why these words are important as we read the book of Acts. We need to ask whether something we read in the book of Acts is simply descriptive or prescriptive. What do I mean? Descriptive means to describe, and to describe means to give an account in words of something. And that is what Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, is doing. Luke, described by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.14 as the beloved physician, states something of his reason for writing and his method of writing at the beginning of his Gospel, Luke, and in the second writing, the book of Acts. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The first account I composed, that's the Gospel of Luke, Theopolis, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he calls the Gospel of Luke here the first account. Uh, the word translated account is logos, word. He's given an accounting in words. He's composed it together. And then when you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, here's what he says about that accounting. Inasmuch as many has under, have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, listen, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theopolis. So again, he's compiling an account of events. He's writing that out in consecutive order. He's concerned with detail of the events. And he describes them so we would know with accuracy the events that took place. Not all the events, but events as he's born along by the Holy Spirit of God, that God, we can say because it's not just written by man, but it's written of God, wanted in sacred scripture. But the point is, it's a a compilation, it is an accounting of events. Therefore, it's descriptive. The book of Acts is descriptive. It uses words to give an account of certain things that happen. But not everything that is descriptive is necessarily prescriptive. Now, what does prescriptive mean? The word prescriptive means giving exact rules, directions, or instructions about how you should do something. Another definition is the action of laying down authoritative rules or directions. That's from Webster's Dictionary, prescription Prescription involves telling people what they should do rather than just describing what was done. And much of what Luke writes in his historical narrative is descriptive rather than prescriptive. So be careful not to interpret what is descriptive as prescriptive, what is an account of what happened as if it were instruction of what must be done as if it were commanded. It's a very important point. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can say, well, this is prescriptive with no reason other than we want it to be prescriptive. Again, we have to go to the whole of Scripture, the analogy of Scripture, in particular, various didactic passages, and let that bear upon whether the practice in the narrative is normative. So that brings me to two other words not only descriptive and prescriptive, but formative and normative formative and normative formative means relating to the time when someone or something is starting to develop so we talk about the formative days of the church when the church at pentecost when the spirit comes and they believe and you see the church in the book of acts what you have is very much formative what you find in the epistles is often then it's formed now we have a more specific church polity of, again, elders, apostles are now gone, the, the foundation is passed, or, or at least they're passing as they write the epistles, and they're talking about now what is going to be normative in the days of the church from then on, rather than what is in the formative days. So formative means that something's starting to develop, and so we have to ask when we read the book of Acts, which is historical narrative, descriptive of these days, this is formative, is this normative? Normative means conforming to standards or norms, that which is usual or typical. So the book of Acts is an account of the formative days of the church. The church is developing in various ways. These are not established practice and norms in many areas that we read of in the book of Acts. So, some of what you see in the book of Acts is descriptive of a formative time in the church, and not everything is normative. Let me give you two more words. Extraordinary and ordinary. There are some extraordinary things taking place in the early days of the church. And some of those extraordinary things were indeed miraculous in nature. God was doing miraculous things in these formative years of the church, and much of it was for the purpose of the unity of the church. For example, the miracle of speaking in tongues and its connection with faith and receiving the Holy Spirit, being able to speak in a known language, but not one that was your own language, in connection with conversion, served the purpose of demonstrating that God was saving sinners through faith in Christ from both Jews and Gentiles, and that all the redeemed from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation were the one people of God. And so what you see God doing in these miraculous events and and the baptism of the holy spirit and the connection with tongues was was often a very visible way of showing that there should not be a church in samaria and a church in jerusalem and a church of the gentiles of jesus christ and a church of the jews in jesus christ no it's one body and so in acts chapter 8 for example philip preaches to the samaritans and there were those who believed Now you remember the Samaritans were hated by Jews. So in Acts 8 verses 14 to 17, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. I'm reading it like that because that's the shock. Samaria received the word of God. Samaritans. They sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, receiving the Holy Spirit after conversion is not normative. We know this from the didactic passages in the epistles in the new testament for example romans 8 verse 9 you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of christ he does not belong to him that's normative What we read in the book of Acts they believed, they were baptized, water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, but then they received the Spirit later through the laying on the hands of the apostles. This is formative years of the church in which God is doing something that's not normative in order that the church might be unified. So what was extraordinary, not normative, was for the unity of the church. Among those who were before Christ at enmity with one another. Another example is is Acts chapter 10. Where the gospel is preached there to Gentiles. And it says in Acts 10 beginning in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. So these are the circumcised. Jews, circumcised according to the law of Moses. They were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now again, we have this miraculous event of them speaking in tongues after believing so that it might be shown even to Peter, how can we refuse water to them? So you understand it's very important as you're interpreting acts to delineate between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. That which is formative and that which is normative that which is extraordinary and even miraculous in the early days of the church and that which is the ordinary now. Now, how does this relate to baptism? Well, (laughs) I'm looking at the clock (laughs) and saying, my time is up. Um, But... (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Let me... Let me show how this relates to baptism and we'll continue next week and talk about it in more detail. It's important to lay that foundation of understanding how we interpret the book of Acts. When you go to the book of Acts and you begin to look at the records of baptism, there are nine of them. Thousands were baptized that are not recorded. In Scripture, Only some are recorded. So Luke has a particular purpose for why he's recording what he's recording even there. So you have these nine accounts of baptism. Some of them, and we'll, we can talk about this more later, some of them were private. Some of them were public. Some would be just one, like the Ethiopian eunuch rather quickly, but some would be among a group of people. Some were... Public. somewhere in households you begin to see it's just narrative of what's taking place but what I want you to see when it comes to um, first of all these these baptisms that are recorded often there are miraculous things taking place the apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 10 as he observed them speaking in tongues miraculously how can we refuse water for them now if you take that and you pluck that out of Acts and say Let's apply that to today. When someone professes faith in Christ with their words, then what prevents them from being baptized? Let's do it immediately. There's be, we need to draw a distinction between what was happening in Acts. I have never as a pastor have someone speak in tongues after they believed on Christ. It's not normative for today. It's the, ordinarily, it's a profession of faith. And ordinarily, what needs to be done then is to examine what is it they believed. So when, or if, this isn't to say that it will happen, if someone were to, in theory, I preach the gospel and there was a miraculous thing and we were in the formative days of the church, then of course it might be an immediate baptism. But that doesn't happen. So what is ordinary is for us to be careful to examine what a person is professing. What do they believe about the gospel? And what are the signs of conversion that we would see today? What's the fruit of that? Not some miraculous event that we see in Acts. So when you look at the book of Acts and the nine accountings of of baptisms, in Acts 2, Acts 8, there are two of them in Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 16, there are two occasions, Acts 18 and Acts 19. When you have those nine occasions, Almost every time, but not every time, there are miraculous, extraordinary things that are happening in relationship to people's conversions. In light of that, if that were happening today and that was ordinary in the life of the church and, not, and, and it was normative today, then we might come to some, a different conclusion. Someone, is ba- someone believes, and now there's a miraculous sign as to their faith in Christ. Well, then who would withhold baptism from them rather immediately? Do you follow the, the understanding that? You're, you understand what I'm saying? Is that the book of Acts is not normative. It's formative, formative days of the church, and there are miraculous things happening. So, for example, many will say on the day of Pentecost, they, they believed and immediately were baptized. That should be our practice. They also had tongues of fire and spoke in known languages miraculously. That's not normative for today. Some will talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, Philip was told by an angel of the Lord where to go in Acts chapter 8. It was a rather miraculous thing. Go here. God's speaking to him. And then afterwards he was taken up. From the chariot to another place. He's transported from one place to another. There's miraculous things taking place. Or Paul, who was baptized, not immediately, but relatively soon after conversion. He had a Damascus road experience. The Lord spoke to him. God speaks to Ananias and says, I'm, here's a man. And God is doing miraculous things. So you can see in these accountings of immediate baptisms, they're accompanied as Luke records them, by that which is supernatural and extraordinary. But this is not ordinary in the life of the church today. Therefore, without supernatural and miraculous signs confirming one's faith, we must affirm one's profession of faith another way, namely through examination and observation. Does the person know the gospel? Does the person believe the true gospel? Is this a credible profession of faith? Are there signs of faith? But what are those signs ordinarily? Are there manifestations of the Spirit and regeneration? Not a miraculous thing of speaking in tongues and, and that, but, but what, is, what does the Bible say about the signs, so to speak, of regeneration of a person who's been born again? Now... Let me draw it to the close. And again, this is a process here. Be patient as we're laying these things out. There may be something I say to you today. You say, I, I've never thought about that in relationship to how I'm using or maybe interpreting the book of Acts. And that adds to your, your toolbox, so to speak, of understanding these things and forming what you believe about these things. There'll be more. But wait. <laughs> but how does this pertain to children just let me begin to open that door a little bit. As we'll speak in a later date, it is particularly thorny to discern the credibility of the profession of a child's fate for a number of reasons. Again, we'll discuss that more in the future. But one argument is usually this. I observe in the book of Acts, someone believes they're baptized rather immediately, soon after, if not very immediately. Therefore, I believe that even children should be immediately baptized upon profession of faith. For that is what we see in the book of Acts. I would argue that's not what you see in the book of Acts. When you now extrapolate from rather immediate baptisms about what is descriptive, not prescriptive, what are formative days and not normative in the church, what's rather extraordinary, miraculous, rather than ordinary in the days of church, and then you jump to applying that to children, the fact of the matter is you don't see that in relationship to children in the book of Acts. As I mentioned, Luke was a very careful historian. He was meticulous in his research and in his writing. And what is clear from his account of the early church, his accounting, his description of the practice of the church, is that men and women were baptized. But there actually is no mention of children being baptized. Look at Acts chapter 12. In fact, let me me just do this and it will show you the meticulous nature of Luke's accounting of these things let's actually go back to Acts chapter 5 Acts chapter 5 Ananias and Sapphira when they're selling their possessions not normative and giving them and then giving to the poor they lied to the Holy Spirit they withheld some of their proceeds That wasn't the issue. The issue is they were lying about it, and God judged them. By the way, these are not normative. I mean, imagine if this was normative. And when they died, it says, verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. That's not where I want to be, is verse 10. (laughs) And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, Sapphira, And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. He said, what does that have to do with any of this? Notice young men. Luke's very meticulous when he even speaks of who they are. And here he points out these are young men in the church who did this, men of able body who would pick her up, take her out. And he notes particularly they're young men. There's a purpose for noting that. Then look in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, I should say. Verse 3. Here's what he notes in his meticulous nature of writing. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now just take note of that, because what you see here is that They're men and women they were dragging off. He's very particular about who it is. Young men are the ones that took Sapphira's body. Here, Saul is dragging off men and women, and the words used are for adults, not children. Look in verse 12 of the same chapter. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus, they were being baptized... And what does it explicitly say in his observation of who they baptize? Men and women alike. So he's made a distinction in his meticulous accounting of what took place as he describes it in the practice. He's particular about, oh, there are young men who carried off Sapphira's body. And they were men and women, just speaking here of adult men and women, who were put into prison by Saul And here as he speaks of those who were baptized, he speaks of those that were baptized as men and women. These are two Greek words that refer specifically to adult men and women. Look in chapter 9, verse 2. And again, speaking of Saul persecuting the church, it says that he asked for letters from him, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So again, he's being very particular. It wasn't just adult men, but even adult women. But he uses particular words here to refer to them. Then in Acts 22, verse 4. Acts 22, verse 4. When Paul is given a testimony after conversion of what he did, he says, I persecuted this way to the death and putting both men and women into prisons so what we find in the book of acts that so when there was persecution of the church it was directed toward those who are men and women luke is being meticulous about who's being persecuted he's being meticulous about those who are being added to their number they were men and women that's acts five fourteen. he says all the more believers there were all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women constantly added to their number. So in his meticulous accountings, he describes it. He describes those added to their number were men and women. He does not use the word for children. He's using specific words for adult men, adult women, we might say. Now, we can, and we'll talk about this. What, what is this idea of maturity where we would consider someone... To be added to our number or being baptized but he's very meticulous when it comes to people young men and when he he mentions children in acts but not in relationship to being added to their number or being baptized now there are those who would say well what about the household baptisms well here we embark upon Another hermeneutical principle, is there going to be an argument from silence? Well, it doesn't say there weren't children, so should we assume there were children in the household who believed and were baptized? Well, that's the paedo-baptist argument. That surely there were children, but that's some pretty shaky hermeneutical ground, we would say. And there's a lot to be said about that whole argument of paedo-baptist versus credo but But that's, that's just one aspect. So we don't want to become... Like the Pato-Baptist argument, just saying, well, there must have been children in the household, so therefore, we're going to extrapolate from that a a practice of baptizing children, no matter the age, as long as they profess faith in Christ. So my point is, as we move forward in, in studying this subject, being thoroughly biblical, we have to be careful in our hermeneutics regarding the book of Acts. It will not do, as I said last week, to simply say, well, Well, there it seems to be an immediate baptism upon profession of faith. That's what we ought to practice. As immediate as it can be, let's do it. If there's water available, let's baptize the one who's professed faith in Christ. No, that's descriptive, but you need not ignore the fact that these are formative, even extraordinary days in the early church, and we're not seeing miracles in regard to people's conversions, signs accompanying their profession of faith, that then we would say, this is a work of the Holy Spirit let's immediately baptize. And certainly you don't find in the book of Acts, extrapolating from that, that children were baptized. In fact, you argue the opposite. And I think when you look at the rest of the epistles, you'll find the same, or the, the epistles, you'll find the same when it speaks to who are members of the body of Christ baptized. Does it speak of children or those who reach a certain level Level of maturity. So, a lot of questions, I'm sure, that then come from this. But the point is, we have to be accurate in our hermeneutics of the Book of Acts. We don't need to be. I'm not trying to equate the two, but understand we don't want to be as careless as the charismatics. Just say, "Well, there it is in Acts." Therefore, we need to do it. Now, we need to understand how to interpret the Book of Acts. What's taking place? what is recorded there and what it is actually teaching us that we find in the didactic portions of scripture so next week we'll continue as we really continue to add our understanding of these things that it might shape our understanding of children church membership and the ordinances i'll make myself available briefly if you want to come and ask any questions before we prepare ourselves for our morning worship let's bow our heads together in prayer Amen. father again we thank you for your word and we thank you that we have it to read to study may we be diligent in our study of your word may we be careful may we be even as you call pastors to be may we all be workmen and very careful in our study of the scriptures word for these are weighty matters regarding again souls the church, the ordinances. And so, Father, we pray that as we seek to minister among one another, build up the body, and be what you've called us to be as a church, that we would study thoroughly these things and apply them wisely. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.